If you have your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 5. I find it interesting that you're reading in the book of 2 Kings. I say all the time, there's no accidents with God. And this certainly is not an accident either, so this will be good refresher for you. That's going to be the text, the majority of that chapter. But before we get there, what I want to do is give a reminder from the Westminster Confession of Faith, a couple of the chapters, the first five chapters, just briefly, because that's going to set the tone and give direction to where I'm going in 2 Kings chapter 5. As you're all aware, the first five chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a logical order to our confession. Chapter 1, of course, lays the foundation, which is what Scripture is and how we are to think of it and what we are to derive from it. Chapter 2 is, of course, the derivation of chapter 1, which is the God that we serve in Trinity. Chapter 3 is his decrees from eternity past. Chapter 4 is creation. And chapter 5 is of providence. Now I say the logical order, of course, because we have to know the material that we're extracting from chapter 1 in order to understand the God that we serve. We find then in chapter 3, after we discover the God, that he has a plan. And that plan has been laid out from before the foundation of the world in eternity past in his decrees. His decrees then come into space and time in his creation. And that includes everything. All created matter belongs to him. In him and through him, by him and for him, all things were made. Interestingly enough, chapter 5 is how he governs or rules that creation. At the risk of sounding trite, we're in the football season, and I think you've probably heard more than once this season, what is the game plan? What is the game plan for this team or that team as they oppose someone else? God's game plan was laid out in chapter 3. His decrees, that is his game plan. That is what he has purpose to accomplish on his playing field, this earth and all that is within it, and how he executes that game plan in this earth is chapter 5, his providence. And it's the providence that I want to emphasize here as we get into 2 Kings chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern. He upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, 
the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. A couple of things. God's providence. You can take great comfort in the fact that God is closer to you than your DNA. We read about the sparrow that falls from the tree. The sparrow didn't just fall from the tree and God takes notice of it. The sparrow's flight path was engineered by God all the way down, and so much so that the dust that that sparrow kicked up from the earth, every dust, every particle has a place foreordained by God from eternity past. That's how detailed God is. We read elsewhere, the hairs of your head are numbered. That's just not a cute saying. He knows the hairs on your head. With that being said, we have to define what the difference between foreknowledge and foreordination is. Because we're told in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, God has foreknowledge, not like most our Arminian brothers and sisters talk about foreknowledge. He has foreknowledge and knows what is to come because he has foreordained them. Because he decreed it to happen, he knows it's going to happen. A week ago, I was planning on coming here, so I had foreknowledge about being here today because I planned it, because I decreed it. And in God's will, I'm here. Foreknowledge and foreordination do not have to be difficult concepts to understand, but they can give us great, great comfort in knowing that every detail of our life including your salvation, the path that God puts you on to bring you to the point of need, of desperate need to recognize the fact that you broke the law and there is no remedy for breaking the law except the wages of sin is death. You can choose to pay that death penalty or you can choose to accept the death of Christ on your behalf. So the fact of the matter is, is that we have, in most cases, as many ways of coming to God as there are men and women that, has, that he has drawn. No man comes unto the Father but through me. No man comes unto me except the Father draw him. Whatever your circumstances were, they were good, holy, right, just, and true. Whatever is going on in your life, it is good, holy, right, just, and true. There is nothing that can be said about your circumstances from our perspective, you may not like them, but they're good, holy, right, and true because it is God's foreknowledge passing to his foreordination. And in his wisdom and holiness, he has decreed it to happen. Now, people say, well, I'm, that's a little bit strong for me. I think fate has a part to play in all this. The problem, fate is meaningless. Fate is merciless. Fate in and of itself is hopeless as opposed to worshiping the God who foreordains your path, everything and all the circumstances in it. His providence is full of mercy, it's full of hope, and it's full of meaning. 
With that being said, 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read. Before I do, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your care and affection for us, for the grace that saved us, for the mercy that spared us. Father, my prayer is that you give your people a word in spite of the messenger. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents. Ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I a God to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, What have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules, load of earth. For your servant will no more offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word. We start <clears throat> with, in mind, what we just read about divine providence and the decrees of God from the Westminster. In verse 2, the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. The little girl from the land of Israel is the hero in this chapter. And the reason is, is because here we have somebody of no name, 
no power, no authority, no education, no options, and she was used mightily in the hand of God to bring a mighty man of valor, a warrior, to his knees and acknowledge the truth of the God of Israel. Now, I hardly believe that she set out to do that. She was just being faithful. What's interesting is that as a woman or a young child, a young girl, as a slave girl, she had to learn something of the God of Israel from her parents. So praise the Lord for godly parents who raise their children. Again, it cannot be overstated the significance of what this little slave girl did. I like to bring up the fact that she had no education. She was a slave girl. Slave, one thing, being female at that time, made you actually totally insignificant. No education beyond what she was taught, obviously, by her parents. And she had the courage to speak truth to power. Let this be an example. Speaking truth to power does not necessitate authority or power or education. She had none. By the way, you remember what Paul says, look among you, brethren, there's not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Here, God, in his divine providence, chooses a little slave girl to bring a mighty man of valor to the truth of the word of God, who, in my opinion, becomes saved at the end. Education doesn't really matter now, does it? And we have to be careful of that. In this chapter alone, Gehazi, who was the assistant to Elisha, he witnessed miracles happen. He saw Elisha pray. He lived with Elisha and saw his routine, his godly routine. He saw Elisha sacrifice. And yet Gehazi, with all of that information coming at him on a daily basis, probably an hourly basis, wound up being a deceitful, manipulative scoundrel who wound up with Naaman's leprosy. Education doesn't mean anything, necessarily. Another example of that is, look in the New Testament. Paul says at one point that he has no one else of like mind but Timothy. That's not because he didn't take anybody else with him on his missionary journeys. We're told that Demas left him because he loved the things of this world more than he loved the Lord, his Savior. We're told that in Asia Minor, everybody that was with the Apostle Paul left him. If there was anybody that you wanted to learn from, it was the Apostle Paul. Was there any more astute, more in tune to the things of God theologically and aware theologically than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was taken to the third heaven. And he said he learned things that were, he said he heard things that were inexpressible. He didn't say that he saw things that were inexpressible. He heard things, which is the reason why Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's something about hearing, right, that God has given to us. It's hearing the word. There was no 
more profound theologian than the Apostle Paul at his time, and all of his mentees, if you will, that left him, they had access to the Apostle Paul. Any question they had, the Apostle Paul could have answered. Education to them didn't matter. They fell away from the faith. So we need to be careful. If you're sitting here wishing for more education, education is a good thing, but it's not going to get you into heaven. Take the example of this little slave girl who had less than no education, yet she spoke truth to power, had the courage to speak the truth of the God of Israel, regardless of what it may cost her. Providence. God brought this little girl in his providence. I think it was part of the idea of humbling Naaman. We're going to see why in just a few minutes. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. Now, all of this has to do with the fact that the, the prophets of Israel were not necessarily respected by enemy commanders or kings. So he went to the king. Why not? As an arrogant warrior, full of himself, successful, albeit the success was given by the Lord, we read in verse 1, he had given victory to Syria, the Lord did. So he sent the letter to the king, the king tore his clothes, thought that it was some kind of a trick, some kind of a trap. Elisha said, send him to me, we'll take care of it. So that they'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now look at Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Of course he came with his horses and chariots. He came with his baggage. He was unaware of what necessarily was going to happen to him. All he wanted to do was have his leprosy cleaned. And let me remind you, leprosy is a symbol Symbols hermeneutically look backwards and forwards. Leprosy is a symbol of sin. Whether you go back in the Bible or forward in the New Testament, it is a symbol of sin. Naaman didn't know that, nor could he even care about it. But he came with all his regalia, with all of his baggage, if you will. I'm reminded of the baggage that I came to the Lord with for years and years and years. If there's anybody sitting here with baggage, like your ego or your good works that is precluding you from getting on your knees and praying for mercy from the Almighty God to restore your soul, to save your soul for the sake of Jesus, leave it at the back gate. He came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha was not impressed. We know that because he sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be stored to you. And you shall be clean. Elisha didn't even go meet him. This just angered Naaman even more. But I want you to understand spiritually what this is talking about. You can bring anything that you think is worthwhile 
to God as part of what you're bringing to your salvation. And at the end of the day, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. It was the song by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Vile to thy fountain I fly. Wash me, Jesus, or I die. He came with his horses and his chariots, stood at the doorway and wanted recognition for who he was and what he had and what he accomplished. Elisha didn't even go out to meet him. Evidence of the fact that it meant nothing before God. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. Everything else only serves to bring judgment upon your head. So we're all aware of people who this has happened to. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. How many of us thought we knew that we were doing okay before the Lord? I was born and raised in a strict Roman Catholic household. I was a good Catholic. And I was a good Catholic because I was scared to death. I was scared to death that if I didn't do things right, I was going to hell. That's what you're taught. You make your first communion. You make your Saturday confession. You make your nine first Fridays. You get christened. You get baptized. You do all of these things. And at the end, all your righteousness is as filthy rags anyway. I remember the first time that I was told none of that counts. I was furious. I was angry. If there's anybody here that gets fierce and angry over the fact that you say you're a good person and I say, so what? You're just like Naaman. You're counting on whatever that thing is. An example of having to leave things behind. Another example. Some of you know, some of you don't, but you're going to know now. Uh, in 2015, uh, I had I had prostate cancer, and I had to have surgery. So they took it out, and everything was going okay. After a couple of years, they said, "Hey, you know what? We're picking up something uh, about your PSA and your blood." And in 2020, it got to the point where they said, "Look, it's now or never." The reason it lasted five years, I put up with it for five years, because I was scared to death. I did not want to have to do radiation treatments. I cannot tell you how terrifying that was to me. And so, because I was so afraid of it, and I drove by a radiology lab, which was five minutes from my house, every single day, three, four, five times a day, I wouldn't even look at it. I was so afraid that I was going to have to go in there at some point and get treatment. I wouldn't even look at it until finally I had to set aside my fear and get the treatment. And so I got 
39 consecutive radiation treatments every day except Saturday and Sunday in a row. And now I'm fine. But I had to set aside my fear in order to get the treatment. The question is, Naaman has to set aside his pride and arrogance in order to get the treatment for his leprosy. What do you have to set aside to have a more full, complete relationship with your God? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you don't know if you're saved. Maybe you don't know if you're blood-bought, born again. Remember John chapter 3, verse 1. A man must be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God. There has to be a work in your life done by the Spirit of God. In, by decree. Thank God for the decree of election. Thank God for his providence and how he executes that degree in space and time and brings you to the point where you recognize you're a sinner and you need a Savior and his name is Jesus. I start out most every message in prison with that line. You're a sinner, you need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. It's just that simple. But you have to recognize the fact that the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. So here's the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. We just read them. What do you do when you finally say, okay, I, I broke the commandments? Is there no hope? Is there no mercy for me? What do I do now? You see, it's desperation. I was so desperate that I finally gave up my fear. Naaman is so desperate that he finally gave up his arrogance and his ego and did what was told. So here's the law. I broke the law. Now what? Now here's grace. The law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ, and that is exactly how it happens. Only when you're brought to the point will you recognize I am a sinner by virtue of law-breaking. I am a law-breaker. Therefore, I deserve punishment. Thank God a substitute was provided. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Not only was he prideful and arrogant, but he had his own way and he thought things should happen. Pride and arrogance led to the fact that he knew better than the man of God. He'll surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord. I know what's required. Because I am a mighty man of valor. I have all these accomplishments. I have all these awards, all these commendations. The king loves me. Don't tell me how I'm to be saved. Don't tell me how I'm to be healed. Don't tell me how I'm to be cleansed. I'm sure you've been there. And we've all met people and know people who look at us like we have two heads when we give them the gospel. When we tell them, it doesn't matter that 
you do this, that you do that. You know, all of those things are good things from our point of view to do. The Puritans called them practiced virtue. But the difference between an unsaved person walking a little old lady across the street and a saved person walking a little old lady across the street is that it makes no difference in terms of accountability and judgment to the unsaved person in God's eyes. There is a difference. Don't tell me. And the problem here is, is that, and we all know this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the things of God are only known and understood by the Spirit of God. So if you're talking to somebody that does not have the Spirit of God, whose eyes are not opened, whose ears are not unplugged, whose heart is not plowed up through repentance, he's not going to understand. So there's no need to get upset, no need to get angry, no need to be disappointed over the fact that he's rejecting what you have to say, but it, because it's only when his time comes and the Spirit of God works in his heart and mind in John 3, 1, where he'll be receptive. We know that for a fact. Charles Spurgeon said, if I knew who the elect were, if all the elect had a yellow stripe up and down their back, I would stop preaching. And I would just walk around and pick up everybody's shirt tail, find the yellow stripe, give them the gospel, and I would know that he would accept it. Because that's the truth. The elect will receive in their time. Let's not forget that redemption is a function of the Trinity. The Father has designed the plan in eternity past. He's decreed it. The Son has agreed to execute the plan. And the Holy Ghost applies the benefits of that atonement in time and space. So if you're sitting here today saved, somewhere in eternity past, God had prescribed a time and a place for the Spirit to open your eyes and unplug your ears to receive faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. The Ordo Salutis in Romans chapter 8. Faith and repentance. I hear this all the time. I have faith, I believe, but, you know, I don't feel like I have to live that way or like you're saying or like the Bible prescribes. I hear that. <laughs> I hear that probably five, eight, ten times a week. And I say, then you better go back and examine your life. Because in my mind, if I don't see a demonstrably repentant lifestyle, it's questionable whether you have saving faith. So if you're sitting here thinking you could live any way you want and say that you have faith, I say no. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And repentance is demonstrated by the works that you do. It is demonstrate. It demonstrates the fact that you have saving faith. Nobody can say if you have faith or not, but they can see how you live. And that's the point. Part of the problem, as we know, is that in Reformed circles, we talk about faith. Faith has three components to it. We have, the notion, in Latin, the notion, or the notion that we're examining. In this case, it's that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior but it can be anything. 
The second thing is a census. I give assent to that. I do my work. I think on it. I pray on it. I do my work. And I assent to the truth of that statement. And then fiducia is the third part, which is where the rubber hits the road. That's where I have to act. You see, you can have the notion, you can know that Jesus saves. You can even give assent to it. But until you act fiducia on that knowledge, you don't have saving faith. What you've got is the same faith as the demons that are listed in the book of James. They have faith. They know God and they tremble. I'll guarantee you they do not have fiducia, the third component of that saving faith, because they're not acting on it. They have not confessed their sin. They have not repented and won't. Therefore, they're in hell. I'm saying that to you only because I know we run into people that say, yeah, I believe, but. There is no but. If you believe, then you must do. Not for salvation, but you do because of salvation. So Naaman had his idea of how he was to get healed. Are not Abana and Parfer, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He had a better idea than the man of God. Oftentimes we have a better idea. We think we have better ideas than God does. God may be leading down this path and we want to go down this path. And because of our stubbornness and arrogance, we walk down this path and suffer the consequences. We always think we know better than God. Remember, what he decreed will come to pass, providentially so, and it is good, right, holy, and true. That doesn't mean I have to like everything that's happening, but I dare say, do not shake your fist in God's face, knowing that it was foreordained from before the foundation of the world. So Naaman's idea was, if I'm going to wash, I want to wash in clean water. I want to wash in the rivers of my homeland. The interesting thing about the Jordan, as you know, the Mount Hermon, the waters flow off of Mount Hermon, right into the Sea of Galilee. The waters are cold, they're crisp, they're clean, and that's the reason why the Sea of Galilee is so full of life. That same water goes, empties into the Jordan River. Jordan River flows to the Dead Sea. So the question is, why is the Sea of Galilee so full of life and the Dead Sea dead. It's the same water. The answer is because the Sea of Galilee is constantly being flushed. It's constantly releasing the waters that it's receiving. The Sea of Galilee doesn't release, doesn't release anything. The waters flow into it and they turn stagnant. So if you want to keep on receiving, you need to keep on giving. Otherwise, you too are going to wind up stagnant and dead. It's just a side principle 
of living the Christian life. The abundant life is had by continuously giving what you receive from God. So he turned and went away in a rage because he wasn't going to be healed in his rivers. His servants came to him and said, listen, if it was some great thing, you'd do it. Just calm down, Naaman. Do what the man of God is saying. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, you got to understand that he was with all of his soldiers. How many, we don't know. Hundreds, probably. He had chariots with him and all the soldiers. And now I can just picture at the river's edge, Naaman going into the river, and all the soldiers on the side, on the banks of the river, with their six-foot, eight-foot-long spears, and as was their custom, before or in preparation for an attack, they pounded their spears on the ground. So here's hundreds of burly, giant, bearded, testosterone-filled men pounding their spears on the banks of the Jordan the first time Naaman goes in and dips. And he comes up, he still has leprosy. Second time, they're pounding and pounding. He goes in and dips. He comes up, he still has leprosy. Third time, fourth time, now the pounding is getting almost deafening. And they're talking to one another saying, if he comes up a leper, we're going to have some fun tonight. We're going to rape, we're going to pillage. We're going to be killing. We're going to be taking hostages. And the pounding continues. Fourth time. Fifth time. Sixth time. They're getting ready. They're getting ready for a time tonight. Seventh time, he comes out clean. I got to believe the soldiers were disappointed. This reminds me, though, of another of an old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stain. Naaman was a leper, a symbol for sin. He went into the Jordan, dipped seven times, the perfect number, came out clean, a symbol of our baptism, which is a sign and seal of our cleansing as well. There is a fountain filled with blood. Remember, all of these circumstances that we're talking about were divinely ordained. Finally, he returns to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him. He said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. The Syrians were polytheistic as most of the surrounding tribes were. They had a sun god and a moon god. 
and God's for all the other various functions of life. But he says, I know there is no God in all the earth. This miracle, this cataclysmic miracle that Elisha, who wouldn't even look at him to humble him, told him to do, he did, swallowing his arrogance and pride, dipped seven times, was healed, and now he knows there's no God in all the earth but Israel. He said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused the name and said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. What is this all about? Exodus 3, we're told, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. There is such a thing as holy ground. Exodus chapter 20, we know God said, build me an earthen altar without any stone and no steps. I don't know where Naaman learned his theology about the God of Israel, but he was right in this stead. He couldn't give a gift to Elisha, but he said, you know what? Give me enough earth to build an altar. I will not worship any other God. So through this set of circumstances, starting with a young, uneducated slave girl, Naaman comes to be numbered among the saints. Naaman comes into the family of God. We know there's only one people of God, and Naaman is part of it, in my opinion. All the way back to the book of Genesis, there's a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's all there is in terms of the peoples on this earth. You belong to the seed of the woman or you're part of the seed of the serpent. And therein lies the eternal battles, the conflicts, all of this war, all the conflict, all the contention, all of the strife that we have today is because there is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent we know who wins. Culturally, it doesn't look good right now for the seed of the woman, but we know how the book ends. Revelation gives us a glorious picture of the triumph of the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. We have to remember that this is a type of salvation for sin by means of the gospel. I want to point out one other thing to you. The reason why this is so significant is because Naaman is named in Luke chapter 4, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. There were many lepers in Israel, Luke says, in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. How many lepers do you think there were in northern Israel? This is talking about the ten tribes at the time. Hundreds? Thousands? Ten thousand lepers, maybe? Only one 
God decreed only one was Elisha going to be sent to. And he used the means, the providence of a young slave girl to bring him to the knowledge of the Most High God. And by the way, the verse ahead of that, Elijah, Elijah was sent only to Zarephath the widow in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to one widow, the only widow that Elijah was sent to. Are you telling me that God does not make choices? That God does not elect? The Bible is full of God making choices. He chooses some over others. He chose Naaman and the widow of Zarephath over all the other widows and Naaman over all the other lepers. That's pretty significant. He chose one leper. We have to sometimes reconcile what we think is right with what we read in the Bible. But we don't sit on top of the Bible. We don't judge the Bible. We let the Bible judge our thoughts. So as difficult as it is to convince others that God is a God of choices, including in election, he chose this one, overlooked this one, chose this one, overlooked that one, chose this one, this one, overlooked the next two. It's a miracle that God chose any in his mercy. He didn't have to choose any because we were all on our way to hell in Adam. In sin, my mother conceived me, we're told. And if it wasn't for the decretive and elective acts of God, as is evidenced with Naaman the Syrian, we too would be left in our sins. Let's have a word of prayer.